Okay, campers, rise and shine, and don't forget your booties, because it's cold out there today. It's cold out there every day. What is this, Miami Beach? No, it's Acamedia with Chris Becker and Michael Kackman. We're coming to you from South Bend, where it's cold out, and we have two-foot snowdrifts and six more inches forecast for tomorrow. Good times. It's lovely, isn't it? Uh, yeah, that's a word for it. That's, well, you kind of got to keep that chin up. But the big question on everybody's lips... On their chapped lips... On their chapped lips, right, is what is in February's Acamedia podcast episode, and will Michael come out and see a shadow at the end of it, giving us six more weeks of lame excuses for missing screenings? Mm-hmm. We'll find out about that second question at the end of the podcast, but I can answer the first one right now. Oh, yes. We are going to begin with an interview with Michael Slowick, uh, part of... What I hope is an ongoing tradition of music-related articles in Cinema Journal. Really, really great interview about the early development of film scoring in the pre-King Kong era. And with my segment, I'll get us starting to think about SCMS, the uh, conference in Seattle coming in March, and with a feature on what has become a beloved annual institution at the SCMS conference, and that is the Girls' Night Out event. All right, let's go. Michael Slowick is an assistant professor in the School of Theater, Television, and Film at San Diego State University. He is here to talk to us today about his article in the most recent issue of Cinema Journal. The article's title is Diegetic Withdrawal and Other Worlds, Film Music Strategies Before King Kong, 1927 to 1933. Michael Slowick, welcome to Acamedia. Oh, thank you. And thank you for asking me to talk about my work. It's, it's great to have you here. So your article, as you, as you write, addresses the neglected area of pre-King Kong sound film scores. Though King Kong is often said to begin sound film music, many of its prominent techniques, including the drift of music from diegetic to non-diegetic terrain, and the connection between music and otherworldly environments, had their roots in prior sound films, end quote. So what is the status quo of our historiographic understanding of King Kong and, and the sound film? Yeah, as far as, as King Kong goes, the the typical scholarly claim that is made is that either King Kong essentially began sound film music, was essentially the beginning of sound film music, or uh, some scholars recognize that there were some mu instances of non-diegetic music, instances of scores, sound scores prior to King Kong, uh, but those tend not to get very much attention, and they're often either explicitly or implicitly described as being kind of rudimentary, not very sophisticated efforts, mm -hmm. and that things really did not get underway until the advent of King Kong. Um, and so e even when scholars recognize those previous films, uh, they, again, they don't get very much attention, and uh, King Kong is understood to be where essentially things get interesting and, and where you really ought to start studying film music closely in the sound era. Mm -hmm. Now, King Kong is 1933, is that right? That's correct. It's 1933. And so the, the transition to sound happens roughly in uh, 1926, 1927. Uh, so we're talking about a, a roughly five or six year period, uh, really six or seven year period in which 
there's really very little work that's been done on how music was used in those films. And I think the general assumption is that there, there simply wasn't very much music at all in those movies. Maybe there, uh, people know that there were a lot of musicals in the period, but in terms of non-diegetic or background music, uh, there's not a whole lot of recognition of just how many experiments there were that preceded King Kong mm-hmm. and experiments that, that even had an impact on King Kong's own score. So this idea that, that somehow the jazz singer explodes onto the scene and then, then we have King Kong and then Shazam, we, we're, in, we're really in the sound era. Just yeah, I mean, there's usually a few mentions of, of, a, key, of a few key films. Uh, the Jazz Singer is one of them. Scholars also will sometimes mention some of uh, Max Steiner's own previous scores. Max Steiner wrote the score to King Kong. Um, and uh, he's got some pretty widely cited, um, a pretty widely cited memoir where he talks about his previous scores that he wrote, Symphony of Six Million, Bird right. of Paradise, The Most Dangerous Game. Um and I think scholars are generally aware of, of Steiner's own writing on that period, and so sometimes they'll mention those scores. Uh, but beyond that, in The Jazz Singer, uh, Don Juan sometimes gets mentioned because mm-hmm. it was the first uh, feature-length film featuring a recorded score uh, that was played simultaneously with the film. Uh, but aside from those, there's really very little mention of, of any other musical experiments. No. But what you found is is some um, really noteworthy films as early as 1929 that are developing some of these narrative techniques that you talk about. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I I had taken some uh, early sound film courses as a graduate student at the University of Iowa. Uh, those were taught by by uh, Rick Altman, mm-hmm. who was was doing his own work in that period, and it we. <laughs> One of the things that, that's really useful about the way that Rick teaches classes is that he'll he's very interested in, in sort of the, the typical kind of ordinary films that you might not pay attention to otherwise. So we saw a fair number of those in addition to uh, the more famous films, the, the, the better known films. And it became fairly clear that there were a fair number of other musical experiments that were going on prior to King Kong. Now, just how prevalent it was, um, that uh, was something that I wasn't sure about, but I could tell there was enough there to warrant a a really serious study of it. Uh, And so essentially my approach to this topic was to try and be as comprehensive as I possibly could, which uh, eventually what I wound up doing was going through the American Film Institute catalog for the years 1926 through 1934. And uh, I found every entry that I could that indicated that there was some kind of music, even if it was just a song. Uh, and I viewed all of the, the films that I could. Mm-hmm. Um, not all of them are available, unfortunately, but but a fair number are. And uh, that's essentially what enabled me to, to write the article that appears in Cinema Journal is that I, I had seen so many films. A lot of them were dead ends, but quite a few also had some interesting things mm-hmm. musically that were going on uh, in them. So, so that's, that's essentially how the, the project got started and, and, and the reason behind it. That brings up a really interesting tension, I think, when dealing with this kind of history where you're trying to... Sometimes we're trying to make claims about typicality, but the only kinds of evidence that we turn to are exceptions. Yes. Which makes for fairly difficult historical claims. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, a, a lot of films are, yeah, it's, it's the exceptions rather than the rules that are being presented as evidence for typicality. That's absolutely right. Uh, and so what the kind of work that I was doing entailed was to, to sit through the films that nobody maybe necessarily cared about or wanted to watch. Uh, but in, in many cases, those are the, the typical approaches. It sounds like lots of fun. Yeah, well, I, I have to say I have a real fondness for the early sound era in general. Um, just about every film, even if it wasn't a, a stellar, you know, a masterpiece, it would teach me something interesting about the culture of the period. Maybe there'd be some really strange use of sound that would, uh, you know, be, be really curious. I mean, the, the, the rules, I don't think, were really solidified for how to use a sound film at that point. So just, just watching the experimentation and things that look like a failure could be as interesting as things that seem more successful to me. Yeah, Absolutely. One of the things you talk about is essentially the development of a kind of cinematic musical language of uh, that helps to negotiate the relationship between diegetic and non-diegetic space, and you uh, propose this this way of talking about it in terms of diegetic withdrawal. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, uh, diegetic withdrawal refers to it's it's a term that I I used because I, I didn't know of anyone who had really described this before. Uh, it's a it's a term I use to describe a situation where you hear music in the film and initially it either comes very clearly from a diegetic source or uh, sometimes it'll be ambiguous. Maybe characters are are um, are eating in a, a restaurant or a nightclub somewhere and you hear music but you don't see that source. But you could imagine that that sort of music might be coming from that location. So the music for diegetic withdrawal it starts out as either clearly diegetic or at least plausibly diegetic. And then as the, throughout the course of the film, uh, the music becomes progressively, progressively less and less easy to justify as diegetic music. Uh, until usually at the end of films that are using this tactic, you'll see non-diegetic music in a place like Central Park in New York City, uh, or you know, some place where it, it, there certainly couldn't be a, an orchestra. Right, it's uh, completely so that's the detached. Idea of non-diegetic yeah. music, and it was it was difficult to generalize about the early sound era because uh, the rules aren't set, and there are so many different experiments. But that was something that did consistently crop up in a number of films. Was this this technique of moving, starting out more firmly planted in the diegetic world and then kind of drifting almost imperceptibly toward a place where you can't locate the music in the diegesis. Mm -hmm. Can you explain an example of one of the films in this early period that you're talking about? Yeah, well, the first example that I am aware of of diegetic withdrawal occurs in the first 100% talking film, or at least the, the film that appears to be the first 100% talking film, called Lights of New York from 1928. And uh, the film starts off with uh, two characters in uh, a hotel room, and you hear popular music playing. And one character asks the other character to switch off the radio. And so the character switches that music off, and then that's the end of music for that scene. Any place Harlem to a hey, you. Shut off that music box, will you? That thing makes me homesick for Broadway. Here we've been stuck in this pint-sized town for nearly a month. It's enough to drive a guy goofy. Uh, then there's a scene in a hotel lobby where you hear uh, more popular music 
Maybe that's coming from somewhere within the lobby that we can't see. So we've gone from diegetic music to plausibly diegetic music. And then I, I used the Central Park example earlier. This is, this is a situation where uh, I would say maybe 15 or 20 minutes later, you do get a conversation in Central Park where you're hearing music, which of course is not coming from the world of the film at that point. Another bootleg murder. You see, that's why I want you to quit that business. Sooner or later, the cops are going to find out it's only, that your barbershop's only a speakeasy. There's so many other things you can do, Eddie. Oh, I know it, darling. And I am going to quit. And when I do, you quit that nightclub, too. So it's an idea of the filmmakers. It's always a little tricky to, to, to guess on intention, but my, my sense is that filmmakers were a little bit... They, they, they questioned the extent to which... Since, since sound film was focusing on recording voices and recording voices and sounds that were happening within the world of the film, I think there was a little bit of uncertainty as to what they could get away with music-wise and whether music also needed to have that source. So when they wanted to use music for purposes beyond the diegesis, uh, I think often they, they kind of snuck there uh, in a way that was imperceptible. Uh, maybe so that maybe to stave off objections or, or to make people a little bit more comfortable with this new mm-hmm. sound film medium that they were listening to and viewing. And of course, what that helps develop is a kind of musical language of cinema that we now think of as completely natural and almost inherent to the medium. Yeah, that's true. Uh, you know, and uh, but but yeah, at, at this particular point, the rules were not set at all, and it's really yeah. fascinating to see see this uh, this this possible discomfort or, or uneasiness about using music in that fashion yeah. you know, as, as just non-diegetic music. Now, some of the other examples you talk about are these moments where the score is essentially a mechanism of taking us into you know, what you call other worlds, these exotic locations or internal states or you know, into a, a narrative space that isn't completely coherent and linear and... and um, consistent with the kind of primary world of the film. Yeah, yeah. I call this this other worlds, and uh, it, it essentially, first of all, I should say that it, it, it seems to become a uh, something of a pattern in Hollywood in uh, beginning around 1931 and especially in 1932 and the months leading up to King Kong, which was premiered in March of 1933. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a situation where Either the either non-diegetic music seems to be tied to some sort of uh, location that's unfamiliar to a lot of moviegoers. So what I call an external other world. This could be an exotic location, like uh, exotic at least for for U.S. viewers, like the South Seas, the Middle East, uh, Asia, sometimes used. Uh, but it could also be other unfamiliar locations, like or other unfamiliar worlds like uh, films set in the distant past. Um, there's a movie called Symphony of Six Million that uses a lot of non-diegetic music that's about uh, a particular Jewish community in New York City, which would have been unfamiliar to, to many U.S. viewers. That score incorporates a fair number of, of traditional Yiddish songs. Uh, mm-hmm. So that that I would consider to be a, a sort of other world as well. Mm-hmm. And then the other sort of otherworldly category that I discuss in the article is 
is when the music seems to be uh, predominantly there to express some sort of highly charged emotional state. So a, a character is in utter despair over uh, not being able to care for her child during the Depression. Or um, a character in The Bitter Tea of General Yen, which is one of my examples, a character, uh, a, a white woman has fallen in love with a, a Chinese man, um, even though cultural norms tell her that she shouldn't be doing that. And uh, she has a, a sort of uh, sort of daydream or fantasy sequence involving her and General Yen. And music is used for that sort of alternative, uh, highly charged mental state. Right. So those are those are the other world's uh, instances that, that seem to have been present in 1931 and 32. And it's something that, that King Kong, I, I believe, was heavily influenced by. The score mm-hmm. of King Kong was heavily influenced by that. Because, uh, as I discussed in the article, in King Kong, the first 20, I think the first 20 to 25 minutes are um, located either in New York City or on a ship en route to this mysterious place known as Skull Mountain, um, or Skull Island, I think it's called. Yeah, right. But it's a, it, once the boat approaches Skull Island, that's the point at which non-diegetic music is heard for the first time. And then that non-diegetic music actually becomes more prominent once the explorers get off on the island and uh, see this giant ape, see these prehistoric, you know, these dinosaurs, uh, and so on and so forth. So, so music seems very strongly tied to this external sort of fantastical other world, mm-hmm. uh, and and there's there's precedent for that. There's there's a fair amount of precedent for that in the films from 1931 and 32, including some of Steiner's own scores, actually, from that period. One of the things you, you, you bring up is that it, it seems like, um, and maybe, maybe I'm, I'm inferring too much from your article, but what I, what the way I read it, um, it sounds like the score is able to essentially articulate, um, desires or longings or, or just kind of, um, these moments of expression that would actually be impossible to articulate in produ- production code Hollywood, right? You know, so the the um, the miscegenation narrative and bitter tears, you know, other kinds of taboo content that can be captured in the score and probably quite clear to the audience, but not something that would be necessarily um, going to catch a censor's eye or ear. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I, that that certainly could be the case. Uh, it, it does seem to, if we're talking about the bitter tea of General Yen, it, it does certainly make to make the main characters' desires for General Yen even more explicit, uh, and it gives an emotional dimension that wouldn't necessarily be there. But then you're also right about the fact that that. You know, censors were looking at, at materials, but uh, if they were reviewing scripts in this period, they certainly weren't going to have uh, any kind of access to the kind of music that was going mm-hmm. to be used. So this is something that they couldn't really review uh, and, until the film was essentially put together, because the musical score in this period and, and today is typically the last thing that's that's, mm-hmm. that's placed into the film. Uh, so yeah, that, that's, that seems like a, a pretty accurate argument. It's not that music alone is the only thing that contributes these ideas, but it certainly, I think, amplifies some of these uh, taboo topics. Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily, kind of pursuing that that line doesn't necessarily 
require us to 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 assume that that there's you know a a kind of tactical planning meeting on the on the part of the creative personnel working on the film saying okay we can't put this in dialogue so you put it in the sound but um, yeah. we're not going to find that conversation and and chances are it didn't exact it didn't happen but part of what is so remarkable about the um, the really quick development of film language during this period is is that within just a few short years we have the the I don't want to say maturation that's a kind of loaded word but we've developed a cinematic language that is essentially telling the same story uh, in multiple registers right you know we've got the sort of manifest narrative content we've got um, mise en scène and costume and and cinematography and sound and that part of the remarkable film language of classical Hollywood cinema is is that it it is able to narrate in these multiple registers almost seamlessly, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it does so in a way that, that you have to work pretty hard to notice any of those registers most of the time. It's it's designed in a way so that you that you don't notice them. Right. Um, and if we're talking about you know if we're talking about censorship, that that can operate on different registers as well. Uh, mm-hmm. Hollywood seemed to be a master of of presenting something so that. If you didn't want to read anything subversive in it, you didn't necessarily have to. This is mm-hmm. especially the case after uh, 1934. Um, but that that reading is is available for you if if you want to take it in that direction. Mm-hmm. And and that makes your point earlier. That that kind of affirms your point earlier about how music could have been a contributing factor to that sort of 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 reading. That sort of more subversive reading, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. What are the lines of continuity, if any, between silent film accompaniment and these very first few years of uh, sound film scoring? There's a fair number of, of lines of continuity. Uh, I, I trace this. I should probably mention that this this article is is part of a larger book project, mm-hmm. uh, which is covering. It's called After the Silence: Hollywood Film Music in the Early Sound Era, 1926 to 1934. So it, it covers these kinds of questions in, in, in more depth. Uh, but, um, there's, there are quite a few, uh, there, there are many continuities really with the, with the late silent era, uh, musical accompaniment strategies for the first few years, really up until about lights of New York in 1928. Uh, it appears that the, score is largely in first for sound films the score is largely trying to imitate late silent film practices uh so you have these recorded soundtracks that consist entirely of music and maybe an occasional sound effect thrown in uh but really it's it's predominantly just wall-to-wall music uh recorded by an orchestra uh specializing in in classical music typically get classical music Mm -hmm. uh throughout most of the film uh, and these these uh, synchronized these early synchronized scores, as they were referred to, uh, seem to be a case of simply trying to transplant, for the most part, trying to transplant silent techniques into the early sound era. Now, uh, when dialogue becomes more prominent, uh, the score gets cut back significantly, uh, but you still do see uh, some some continuities there. Uh, in particular. Uh, a really important component of late silent era film scoring was the use of 
of musical themes or, or motifs. So you would have a particular prominent melody that would be attached uh, often to a particular character, and it would recur when that character would, would show up in, in various scenes. And that strategy of, of using uh, motifs, using themes, uh, that continues into uh, some of the early sound era scores, even after the score gets reduced and you mm -hmm. have fairly sparse music rather than this wall-to-wall -wall scoring practice. Uh, and there are certainly other uh, elements of continuity as well. The, uh, just, just to name one other example, the, the theme song became really important in the late silent era. It would be a song that the um, orchestra would play repeatedly throughout the course of the film. Often somebody would be hired to write lyrics to that song. Uh, sheet music and records uh, would be available of that song. Um, and it was a, a really major way of, uh, of marketing both, both the films and uh the, 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 the sheet music sales as well. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was beneficial for the sheet music industry. And uh, that recurs also in the early sound era, even in films with, um, without a whole lot of non-diegetic music. Sometimes what you'll find is you'll have a character sing a song early on in the film, and then that song will repeat itself periodically uh, throughout the, the rest of the film. So those are a few examples of, of some continuity that existed between the late silent era and the early sound era. Oh, that's fascinating. So this is part of the material of your your forthcoming book. Yeah, yeah, it is. I, I spend the first chapter of it t talking simply about influences. Um, mm -hmm. And the, the silent era, the silent era film music is the most proximate influence and I think the most important one. And part of the reason that I do that is my sense is that during the early sound era, there wasn't, the, the emphasis wasn't so much on, hey, we have this new form, let's do something totally different with it, but it's, uh, what is this form most like, or what mm. do we think this is? There's uh, one thing that was really influential to me was uh, Rick Altman's idea of crisis historiography, which is the idea that a new technology is initially defined by pre-existing technologies or pre-existing techniques. So I think that the early sound film was influenced by silent film music. I think you can also see influences ranging from uh, opera to stage musicals to uh, the emergence of radio just before uh, early sound film. So yeah, I, I think it was a heavily, heavily influenced product, especially in its earliest years. What kinds of archival sources are you dealing with in working on this project? Um, there were... Two main types of archival sources. Uh, I, a, a number of films that, that looked important for the project were not available on any kind of D DVD, VHS, or even Laserdisc format. So I did some traveling to archives simply to, to, to view these films. I did a lot of viewing at the University of Wisconsin-Madison's um, center there. Yeah, I used the UCLA Film and Television Archive some as well. Mm -hmm. Actually, happily, um, even since I started work on this project, I began working on it in 2010. Uh, and I completed the first draft of the book in 2012. And simply in that time, uh, this service that I, I think some are, or if not many people are aware of, called the Warner Brothers Archive Collection, uh, has been really expanding significantly the number of films 
that they've been putting onto disc. The idea of this collection is that uh, it's not really a commercial product, but it's made to order. And they have a, a series of films in their archive that they've uh, that they're making available and they can put on a DVD if you specially request it. And so a number of films that I had to go to the archives for in 2010 and 2011 have become available through the Warner Brothers archive collection. Um, but nevertheless, I did a fair amount of viewing in the archives. The other thing I, that I spent a while looking at were uh, the scores themselves. Uh, and I was especially interested in, in handwritten notations and really anything that gave me a clue as to what the the um, film music writers were thinking or mm-hmm. what kinds of techniques they used to get that music into the film. Uh, and my main sources there were the... Um, the Warner, what is it called? The uh, the cinema, the Warner Brothers Cinema Archives, I think it's called at USC, uh, and then UCLA and the Young Research Library Special Collections holds a lot of RKO scores, uh, including some for my project. Uh, so those. Oh, and also, I, I also was able to look at some uh, Paramount Pictures scores as well, which are available in the, the Paramount Pictures Studio in Hollywood. Uh, so those are my three main sources as mm-hmm. far as, as, you know, archival written materials went. Terrific. That's sounds like you found some amazing resources for this. Right. Yeah, uh, there were, there really was terrific stuff. Uh, it was, I, I found a lot of interesting things for Paramount, Warner Brothers, and RKO. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, those are three of the most significant studios uh, as far as early sound film music goes. I had less success finding... Uh, information for Fox and for MGM. Uh, MGM, curiously enough, didn't really do much with film scores. They kind of lag behind the other studios. Uh, but Fox did have some significant experiments, and I, I do regret that I wasn't able to find more material mm. for, had more written material for that studio. Hmm. This is a fascinating project, and I'm so glad to to read at least a piece of it in Cinema Journal. It was, you know, fantastic to to open up this this issue of the journal and and find not one but two articles dealing with uh, early film sound. All right. Well, Michael Slowick, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you. Thank you for asking me to to talk about my work. Great interview there, uh, Michael. I was especially struck by the point where you guys discussed the idea of how, you know, going back in your research to points before conventions were set and things that are now natural to us, um, kind of returning to the point at which those things were still fluid and in question and looking at how those conventions got cemented into place. Yeah, absolutely. You know, just this past week, I was teaching Casablanca, which I, I know you've taught before. Yeah. Too. And it, it's such a, a, you know, this is 15 years into the development of the sound film, and it's such a rich audio experience. And you've got the, you know, somebody could probably start singing as time goes by here. You must remember this. Um, but this really, really rich use of music within the diegesis, but which then completely segues into non-diegetic music in a way that tells the story on these multiple tracks, right? And so you have all this information about character and intention and motivation and, you know, the, the enrichment of the story world that's happening in this register that we don't even think about. And this is an incredibly sophisticated language that is developed by that point, And it's really amazingly quick. 
Yeah, and I love teaching that film for intro class because I think students picture classical Hollywood films from the 1940s as very simplistic. And when you can Mm -hmm. take them to that deeper level and let them look at how the visuals are working with the sound and how complex it is moving from diegetic to non-diegetic, you can really open their their, uh, eyes or ears to uh, how sophisticated those texts can really be. Yeah, absolutely. An amazing amount of craft. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, um, our next segment, it is time to start thinking in earnest about SCMS. And I got a reminder of that in my inbox last week. And happily, it was a reminder for the fun stuff, not so much the hard stuff, like actually writing a paper. And it was an invite to the annual Girls' Night Out dinner event at the conference. We actually have some audio from last year's event that Cinema Journal's associate editor, Anna Frola, kindly recorded for us. And to help me better understand why there was so much joy captured in those sound bites from last year's event, I also uh, interviewed the head organizer of this year's dinner, Caitlin Benson Allett, who is an assistant professor of English at Georgetown University and core faculty member in its film and media studies program. Um, so, what you're about to hear is information from her interspersed with comments from attendees of last year's dinner about what they love about the Girls' Night Out dinner event. Girls Night Out is a networking dinner and social event that has been happening at SCMS for 28 years now. Uh, It was started by our past president, Chris Holmland, and it's gotten bigger and bigger as time goes on. And at first it was really about finding a space for women to talk about gender issues in the academy. And now it's really grown to a larger mentoring and and just social event, a time to meet new people through SCMS and make new friends. This is my first girls' night out at SCMS, but it's not my first SCMS. And the reason I decided to come this year is that Shiley Warren, the fabulous Shiley, convinced me that it was one of the best parts of attending SCMS. So I'm really thankful to her for encouraging me to come this year. So far, it's been great. It's still early in the evening. We'll see what happens. I come to Girls Night Out because it's an awesome opportunity to network with people. I've been coming since I was a graduate student, and now I'm a professor. It's a really great way to pay back, to pay it forward, and to help other people out, and great conversation, great food. It's always an awesome experience to be a part of. Speaking from personal experience, when I started going to SCMS as a graduate student, I was incredibly intimidated about talking to these people whose articles I'd read and whose books I revered. And meeting them at Girls' Night Out, where I knew that they'd come to meet new graduate students, to meet new people, and to make new connections, it just kind of took the wall down by six inches or let's say a couple of feet, I knew they were there to meet me and not just to see their friends. And so it was easier for me to go up and put my hand out and say, hi, I really admire your work. And then find out that everybody always wants to hear that. So I think the benefits of uh, Girls' Night Out for SCMS are that it's a really inclusive and open social space. 
And it's also, in a way, um, it benefits from the fact that it's unofficial. We're not an official part of SCMS. Um, we're in the program now, but we're kind of a rogue organization because it's for women only. Women, you know, with a Y, meaning cis and trans women, and um, generally female or feminine identified people. But I think having that kind of tangential relationship to SCMS being unofficial also makes it feel uh, more casual and easier to get involved with than some of the more official and thus, though they try not to be more intimidating social scenes or networking events at SCMS. I've been coming to SCMS off and on for too many years to count. And in the beginning, there wasn't a girls' night out. And I think what's great about it is that it's a nomadic community that we all can count on. And uh, it's actually much better than networking. By now, it's really friendship. And that's about the most you can ask. I'm here because I find it sometimes hard to find a community, I guess, in um, sort of academic circles and the thought of finding my sisters and like chatting with them and um, utilizing that women's energy really struck me as appealing and it just seemed like a very congenial, warm environment to decompress at SCMS, which I must say is a pretty warm conference as conferences go. So yeah, it's, I, you know, it's a very nice spirited event and I guess that's why I'm here. The girls' night out dinner in Los Angeles, I remember we were all just seated at really long tables. And usually like the size of the tables, we want bigger tables so that it's not like a little group of four, which might just be friends, right? But that you're going to end up at a larger table sitting next to people that you haven't met before and you don't know, but you'll get pulled into their conversation because you already have so much in common, right? Everyone's there from SCMS. So I remember at the LA Girls' Night Out, I ended up randomly sitting next to a couple of graduate students from UC Berkeley who we just had an awesome conversation. They became friends, and then later on, one of them became my official mentee through the Alexander Doty Memorial Mentorship Program. And I got to work with her when she was on the job market. And I just like, we, we became really close friends as a result of just randomly sitting next to get each other at this super long table. I've always found it difficult to network at conferences. And there's something about a women's event that seems a lot more welcoming. And so far it's lived up to its expectations. I've already had a great conversation with my dinner table mates and met some wonderful graduate students and I'm hoping that I can experience something like this again. I'm really happy to be part of Girls Night Out and I've been doing this for years and years and years. Um, I love interacting with younger scholars. It's a, get, a great way to get to know people as they're just beginning their work or they're just finishing up a dissertation. Um, also, I get to meet some people who have been my footnotes for years and I <laughs> finally get to see them in person. I, I think it's just so much fun. Another great memory is from 
Boston, where I w- it was one of the first ones I organized, and I was just running around like a chicken with my head cut off, you know. And I think it was like the third or fourth course before I finally sat down, and the one empty seat that I found happened to be next to Linda Williams, who is just one of my, you know, film studies heroes. And she and a couple of other senior scholars who were there were saying, you know, um, we come here to meet the graduate students and the junior scholars. And, um, and somehow we end up in this table in the corner. And it's like everyone's still scared to talk to us, but we're here for them. And I was like, yes, yes. It's working and and I want to talk. I have so much to say. So that was just like one of the best dinners of my life. Women academics, we get a kind of bad reputation for sort of eating our own, for not being terribly supportive of each other. And I feel like this is a really great example of how that is absolutely not the case. This is an event that is all about women senior scholars kind of bringing in the next generation mentoring them, helping them along, making sure that they kind of know that they have a place. And that just makes me feel really good. I come to academia from the business world, and I noticed the women not helping women more in academia than I did in the business world. And I just, if I can be a part of changing that, then I want to intentionally be a part of changing it. So this year we're going to be at a really awesome restaurant called Fair Start and we're particularly excited about it because it's a community service restaurant. It's designed to, its mission is to bring in homeless or disadvantaged people from King County and train them in culinary production, give them professional uh, kitchen and service skills, and then help them find jobs in Seattle or the greater King County area. So we are really excited to find not just a local restaurant, you know, that was part of the community, but that was really doing good in the community. The food is always good. They do a really nice job at the restaurants. Um, And it's very affordable. And everyone's very welcoming, and um, I think it's a great event. I guess the main reason I came is because I've come from Australia, and so I thought it would be a fantastic opportunity to meet more people because you know I find that SCMS can be a little bit overwhelming let's say in general so I thought a night like this would be a good opportunity to actually catch up with some people one-on-one um, and just to have you know, just have a really kind of intimate night out I guess it was great. Girls Night Out has always been open to women cis or trans queer or straight. We want people to bring their families, bring children, bring friends from the area who may not be SCMS members, but are are down for, for good food and dancing with awesome women. So it's an incredibly inclusive event and we just want to make it as big and inviting for as many people as possible. I have been coming to Girls' Night Out since 2010 uh, with the LA conference and I pretty much started coming because of Chris Homeland uh, because she told me I should and she's always right. (laughs) Um, But it's always been fun to come together to take some time out from the conference and just talk and meet new people 
and laugh a little bit and eat good food that I might not otherwise find on my own. Um, and I think it's a really important event that we continue to have so that um, women and people who may not have space in the conference otherwise can have a space of their own to get together and talk and get to know each other. I'm thrilled that this is the biggest girls night out ever and it is owed all to the team and to the girl with an RRR spirit that lives in all of us. So thank you to Caitlin Benson-Allett and all of the women or girls who shared the responses. And thank you to Anna Frola for recording last year's um, audio. If you would like to attend this year's dinner, we have a link to the Eventbrite page for Girls' Night Out where you can buy tickets. And that's posted on our website at aca-media.org. So as we wrap up, what are you watching right now, Chris? Um, I'm trying to do a little bit of catch-up on Oscar movie time, and it's less going to see the big ones, but I really love to watch. Uh, this weekend, for instance, at our cinema, we've got the short subjects screening here in our cinema, and then I'm trying to see some of the documentaries. And uh, I recently caught 20 Feet from Stardom, oh, yeah. which I thought was a lovely little film. And it's it really one of those... Is. You know, you have the the sort of really heavy subject documentaries like The Act of Killing, which I presume is going to take the Oscar. It's an incredible film. But I really love when a film about a subject you don't really think about and is more smaller scale gets a really well-done documentary made. And that's why I thought 20 Feet from Stardom was really interesting for that. Yeah. And it's been nice to see that film getting some good attention and of course they've done a you know a, a fantastic job of marketing it after the Oscar nominations and stuff but and I hear there's even going to be a, a, a television so somebody wants to make a television series out of it now oh, uh, so and good to see. I, I think there's a lot of really interesting stories that could could be told from that yeah well that wraps us up for this month and I want to give you a little tease for next month it's going to be an SCMS preview episode so we're going to try to learn some more about how the conference is put together and then we want to also give you a preview of things to do in Seattle, how to get a taste of the city while still earnestly conferencing. So if any of you folks out there are familiar with Seattle, uh, check in with us in the next couple of weeks. Send us an email at info at aca-media.org so we can pick your brain about where to eat, where to stop for coffee between panels, what media-related tourist spots are recommended. Or you can tweet us at aca underscore media or post on our Facebook page. All the links to that are on our website, aca-media.org. Acamedia is produced with the support of ISLA at the University of Notre Dame and the Department of Communication at Denison University. As well as SCMS and Cinema Journal. Our work would be impossible without the work of our collaborators and, and co-producers, Bill Kirkpatrick at Denison and Todd Thompson at the University of Texas. As well as our production assistant, Jillian Meisner. And we would also like to thank our episode participants, Michael Slowick, Caitlin Benson-Allen, and the participants of Girls' Night Out. In closing... Mm-hmm. You've probably all heard us talk about how much we love to hear from our listeners, hearing what they think about the stories we tell, the people we interview, the movies we pan. We like knowing what you're up to and where you listen to us. Your hopes, your dreams. We respond to as many of those letters as we can, but sometimes we get one that really tugs at our heartstrings. It's a tough winter out there. Well, not so much for those on the West Coast where there's a drought and record highs. And, okay, well, probably not so much for Nome, Alaska, where it hit 54 degrees this week. But in the Midwestern heartland, and here at Acamedia Central, the heartland of the heartland, if you will, it's been mighty cold. Because of that, we're especially touched by those whose dedication to Acamedia means that they take us with them right out into the storm. We learned this month that some of you take us along when you're walking the dog, braving the icy roads, and shoveling your driveways. We can't imagine a more honored place to be than in your earbuds in a blizzard. Our promise to you 
We will do everything we can to keep you warm, keep you safe, keep you shoveling. And so, Eric and Madison, this long-distance dedication is for you. 